And you may be seated, and if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 13. We're continuing on in this series, uh, Sent. Um, I want to just bring you a word of encouragement. We are almost halfway there through the book of Acts. Who's excited about that? Yeah, all two of you. Great. Um, We are halfway through, or close to halfway through the book of Acts uh, and uh, I'm excited. This series is really ramping up. I know we're we're like 12 weeks into this series, and there we still have a lot of, of acts left to learn from. Now, one of the hardest things uh, I have come to know in this life that we have to do is to leave our comfort zones. Would you guys agree with that? It's really difficult to leave our comfort zones. Most of us, if we're really honest, right, and all for honesty in church, yeah, right? So most of us, if we're honest, we, uh, we have a, a way or, or maybe a pattern of doing things in our life. Would you guys agree with that? Each one of us has a pattern or a way of doing certain things. We, we have a routine, if you will. And if we're not careful Uh, The danger of that routine can easily set us in what I would call a rut. Have you guys ever been in a rut before from doing the same thing over and over, right? Someone once told me uh, early on in ministry that a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. A rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. Now, it is human nature to fall into a pattern. It's human nature to get into a rhythm in this life that can oftentimes end up being unhealthy for us. You guys ever notice that in your life? A pattern started to end up being unhealthy. Now, we might even have used the phrase or thought the phrase, I'm just going through the the motions. I'm just going through the motions. Have you ever asked somebody, uh, how, how are you doing or how's it going? And they replied back to you, you know, I'm just living the dream. You guys know the phrase, I'm just living the dream, right? But in the Christian life, in the Christian life, all throughout the pages of scripture, we encounter a vital call to, impre- to embrace the discipline of consistency, the discipline of consistency. And that discipline echoes the very biblical exhortation that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Now, if you would direct your attention to the screen, because I want you to capture uh, this verse this morning. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline. It yields the peace of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. The Christian walk every single day for the believer necessitates steadfastness. Amen? It necessitates perseverance in this life. An unwavering commitment to a path that has been laid out before you by God himself. Despite any discomfort that may accompany that path. However, there is a peril that lies in wait for the Christian. No, I'm not talking about Satan. But there is a peril that lies in wait for the Christian, and it is the peril of complacency. 
We grow accustomed to the rhythms of our spiritual practices. And there exists a subtle danger of slipping into a state of self-satisfaction. This complacency, I think that every single one of us knows and understands to some degree, is a treacherous quagmire in this life. It causes us to lose sight of our divine purpose. Our once vibrant passion begins to dwindle for the things of God. We begin to replace it by a sense of routine that's devoid of any fervor for Christ's mission. And in this state, uh, a troubling progression begins to unfold. And we finally realize it. We realize that we're in the the quote-unquote mundane routine of Christianity. We get up every single morning and we read our Bible and we pray, but it means nothing to us. We feel like we're in a dry season or a desert place. God, where are you? Why are you not speaking to me? I'm doing, I go to church, I serve, I give, but what's going on in my life? Why do you feel distant from me? We've all been there, right? We've all been in those. Maybe you're in that place right now, today. And there's this desire, this longing inside of you to reignite the fervor that you once had. And we unwittingly, every single one of us, end up seeking solace in what appears to be some wholesome pursuit. Every one of us, some hobby, some activity, uh, a pursuit, as the culture likes to say, of self-identity. And yet, we begin to pursue all of these things, these otherwise innocent endeavors, and they tip the balance and they veer us into the realm of idolatry very quickly. And what once started as a, as a leisurely activity in this life morphs into a misplaced purpose, a substitute for, for the ultimate calling of a disciple of Jesus Christ. In, in contemplating the, the, the very intricate tapestry of our human endeavors, we observe a profound theological reality that mirrors in the context of human relationships and businesses and even the pursuits that we have that we think are just menial. I, I was... Uh, talking with a good buddy of mine over the weekend, uh, who is also a pastor. He's pastor probably twice as long as I have. And we were talking about marriage. Now, how many of you in here are married, have been married? Uh, you know about marriage. You know somebody who's married, right? Every, that means every hand should go up. Yep. Let's try that again. How many of you are married, have been married, know about marriage? Know so- okay, everyone's hands up. Great. Right? We were talking about marriage. And and then the sacred bond that was ordained by God. How many of you have been married longer than five years? Ten years? Fifteen? So there's still a lot of hands up. My wife and I are about to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary in less than two weeks. One of the things that we often talk about in our marriage is ways to prevent the gradual drifting away from my fervor or her fervor from each other as husband and wife. The the very uh, essence that captures our union as husband and wife. 
How many of you remember the, the uh, fervor that you had at the beginning stages of your relationship? Right? The, the selfless pouring out of oneself for that relationship. Uh, reminiscent of some sacrificial love that's observed in the early stages of dating or, or, or marriage. We, we call this the honeymoon phase. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? Then time begins to unfold in that marriage. And the relentless demands of life begin to sidetrack you as an individual from the very purpose and design of that marriage. We see the same exact parallel in the business world today. All across the globe, we see that same parallel where successful business owners uh, they are driven by a foundational principle that once propelled them. And they inadvertently deviate from those very tenets because of the, the allure of success or profitability or, or market dominance in some way. And, and it beguiles them into forsaking the very pillars that underpinned the initial triumphs of their business. Right? And that veering from those fundamental principles, the flame of passion begins to diminish. We see it in marriage. We see it in business. And moreover, we see it even in the realm of sports today in our society. While seemingly unrelated, all three of these share a strikingly similar narrative. Teams driven initially by a desire to, to become the, the best at what they do, become ensnared by the trappings of marketing strategies and, and revenue maximization and the quest for financial gain and only financial gain. And the very pursuit of excellence inadvertently takes a back seat. Uh, the core purpose in every one of these avenues is overshadowed. And the, ar the ardor for triumph and the love for these things initially begins to wane. Your pastor, why on earth are you talking to us about business ventures and marriage and sports? Because in all of these instances, a resounding theological truth is unveiled for us. Straying from one's fundamental calling culminates in a gradual loss of passion and fulfillment. The phenomenon is a spiritual parable for each one of us here today. And it reflects the very architecture of creation the way that God designed it. God, who fashioned you and I with a specific purpose, imbues our lives with meaning and calls us to steadfastness in fulfilling every purpose that he's laid out before us. And when you and I adhere to that divine calling, when we adhere to that very purpose, we remain aligned with the will of God. Our passion stays set ablaze before us. We have a sense of fulfillment that is intact because we followed God's call on our life. Do you know every single thing that I have just spent the last seven minutes describing to you happens in the church? If we go to the book of Revelation chapter 2, in God's divine disclosure to the church at Ephesus, 
He irradiates a spiritual drift that is experienced by the early church community when he says that the church left their first what? They left their first love. And that metaphorical notion that is given to us in Revelation 2 does not imply an outright loss of love for God. It was a departure from the initial fervor and devotion and zealous love that they had for Christ initially, for his gospel And that departure, it manifests for each one of us in a subtle shifting of our priorities. It diminishes the the premacy of Christ's teachings and his divine love in our hearts. And so you may ask the same question that I did as I reread Revelation chapter 2. How could a church so deeply rooted in the teachings of the gospel, founded, in the love of Christ, how could they deviate from such a sacred foundation? How is this even possible? Church, the the, the gradual drift away from steadfastness, the gradual drift away from truth is attributed to the influence of worldly distractions, our sinfulness, the external pressures of our culture, the allure of other unbiblical doctrines that slowly seep their way into our midst. And then over time, the the church finds itself entangled in, in matters secondary to the central tenets of Christ's teaching. We begin to gradually replace the centrality of Christ with peripheral pursuits. And today... We, we find ourselves residing in an era where many churches are faced with a comparable predicament than what we are going to see in, in the text. Uh, a fervor and a passion for Christ and his mission have, have waned in numerous churches, even some right here in Ionia. And instead of us being consumed by Christ, churches begin to find themselves impassioned by material gain or having the most amount of butts in seats in their building or or by social pursuits or even some theological debate that's going to detract them from the very gospel that's been laid out before them. Then that very shift that we see has birthed a myriad of ministries in our culture. But one has to pause. The the believer has to pause this morning and reflect on whether those divine pursuits align with the primary mission that's been mandated by Christ. Are, Are we the well Uh, Are we contemporary believers truly embodying the essence of Christ's commands and the gospel message? Are we? Are we proclaiming God's mercy and salvation to a broken world? Or have we inadvertently been swayed by the trappings of something that's temporal? Have we lost our sense this morning of divine purpose and passion for the things of God? Because the danger, the danger for not just our church, but the capital C church in every age is that the church ceases to be a movement. And instead, like I said to you on week one, 
we become a ministry that provides services for people or just a building that people attend every Sunday. That's the danger for you and I this morning. And as we look at our text, it's no wonder that God kept the church moving and he kept sending men and women out with the gospel. Because when a church gets into a spiritual comfort zone, the gospel will begin to lose its impact in the community around you. Uh, The very purpose of the church is to intentionally engage our culture by proclaiming the gospel of Christ and making disciples. That's what we're called to, that would have been a great spot, church, for an amen. Because that's what we're called to do, to engage our, our culture with the gospel and then make disciples who then in turn take the gospel to others and share the good news of salvation with them. And in turn, they make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what we're called to do. And in fact, it's the, the, probably the, the most profound command given to us before Jesus ascended into heaven. And in chapter 12, we saw last week, this transition began to happen in the book of Acts uh, from, from Peter's leadership to Paul's leadership. And we see this detour that, Paul, or that Peter had to take on his way back to the church at Jerusalem. And chapter 12 ended, uh, for those of you who remember back with Paul and Barnabas heading to Antioch, and a new era begins with these young men. There was this new center, so to speak, of church activity coming out of Antioch, and the new leader was Paul. And in this new era, the the mission and the mandate and even the message had not changed, but the church was still on the move. So I want you to pick up with me in verse number one of chapter 13. And it says, "Now uh, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called uh, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called for them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. I want you to stop right there. The first thing I want us to see here in the text is the importance of spiritual preparation. The importance of spiritual preparation. In the account of the early church here in the book of Acts, we witness a portrayal of a multicultural, multi-generational congregation that has been vitalized and directed by the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's impartiality embodied here by this church shows us that the gospel transcends every single boundary. It unites believers from diverse backgrounds in one common faith and purpose under the banner of Jesus Christ. And that unity, the unity that is born of the Spirit's transformative work, it epitomizes the body of Christ. It reflects uh, the, the work of God's creation. And it's crucial for us this morning to recognize that while the church has this rich culture of studying, this rich culture of immersing themselves in the teachings of Christ, they were also attuned to the inherent danger of prolonged contemplation. How many of you have been in church for more than half of your life? I don't need to know years. Don't age yourself. But you've been in church 
more than you know about God or you've known about God for more than half of your life. One of the things that I have seen in churches, um, I, I've been in churches all over the place. Uh, one of the things that I've seen in my time in ministry is that stagnation lurks in the very comfort of perpetual study. It lurks there. The church in its early stages grasped the peril and discerned the call to action. They realized the imperative of launching outward to fulfill the Great Commission. At every turn in the book of Acts, the church was moving with the gospel to somebody else. And the very movement that we see in Acts is marked as a launch pad for the gospel. It perpetually propelled the message of salvation to the very corners of the earth. And yet... This movement came at a cost. It required courage from every individual to leave their comfort zone. How many of you in here, how many of you in here would raise your hand? And as I said earlier, all for honesty in church, you guys all chuckled, raise your hand, so now you can't lie. How many of you in here would raise your hand right now and say, there is some fear in me about sharing the gospel one-on-one with somebody. It's okay, right? I'm, I'm not going to dog you. I'm not going to call you up front and be like, can you believe so-and-so? Raise it? No, there's a fear in you of some sort. It doesn't matter what. There is some fear in you uh, of sharing the gospel with somebody. And herein, herein lies a significant principle for us that we find in the text. Obedience to the call of the Holy Spirit. Obedience, church, to the call of the Holy Spirit. The early church displayed a a vibrant obedience. They, They had a responsive willingness to the promptings of the Holy Spirit at every turn, even if it meant for them leaving their place of comfort to share the gospel with somebody else. It encompassed for us not only the public acts of ministry, but also the private worship life of the early church. I mean, uh, the departure that we see in Acts of all of its key leaders to share the gospel embodied for us obedience. It was a testament to their commitment to truth and to grace and the greater mission of advancing the gospel. And before we go any further, for you Gold Star students, you note takers, I want you to write this down. And if you don't write it down, uh, I want for you to please allow for this to be tattooed on your memory. All true public ministry must surge from our private worship life. Meaning that my private worship life, my relationship with the Lord should be the very flame ignited inside of me that brings the gospel to other people. Our worship of God is the driving force behind our service to him. Worship is, in essence, the surrender of our entire being to God. means that we have adoration and and reverence and awe that is directed towards our Creator and Savior. It is this very wellspring inside of us uh, of worship that our desire to serve and honor and obey God, that's where it emerges from. 
the act of fasting here in the text, a topic that I don't believe that I have spoken on since I have been here, but one that I think is important for us in the future to learn and know about. But the act of fasting that we see here in the text intimately ties itself to prayer. Intimately. And it illustrates a spiritual discipline that finds its roots in consecration. In consecration, church, and if you don't know what that word means, I want you to try to spell it on your piece of paper and look it up when you get home. Because it's important. Fasting is a deliberate separation from the temporal. It is a dedicated period of seeking the Lord through intensified prayer and abstination of something. It's a discipline for you and I of self-denial. It focuses our heart and mind off of us and the things around us directly back to our Savior. Man, and I can tell you through fasting and prayer, you are consecrated for the very purposes of God. Every time. I I have often come to realize through moments of fasting and prayer that during those times the Lord will impart clear direction. He will align my heart with his divine will for whatever the situation is, whatever the next season of life, whatever the storm I'm walking through. And then yet again, In these first three verses, another crucial theological insight emerges for us that's often overlooked. Before you and I ever embark on any work for the Lord, our worship and consecration must be in check. It must be. The state of our relationship with God, the the purity of, of our adoration for God. The authenticity of our surrender impacts the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of service. A genuine, vibrant worship life will always precede and sustain your service unto the Lord because it's rooted then in reverence and love for God and not for your own self. And that preparation church If you get nothing else that I have said today, nothing, please don't miss the fact that this preparation, this this spending time with God is the indispensable foundation for fulfilling the Lord's mission in your life. It involves uh, deepening your relationship through prayer, study, and then obedience. And spiritual preparation equips you and I with strength and wisdom and discernment that each one of us really requires in order to navigate every challenge and every opposition that inevitably uh, arises in our service to God. I understand that following the Lord moment by moment is a difficult task. I get it. 
Just because I have the label of pastor doesn't mean that I don't struggle with sinfulness. I understand that it's difficult in the midst of temptation. I understand that it is, is difficult to obey the commands of God when culture is saying one thing and the enemy is knocking at the door and the flesh inside of us wants to do the very opposite of what God has called us to do. But the paramount role of the Holy Spirit in our calling and in our commissioning and in our subsequent service can't be overstated or studied or, or seen as a reminder to us. It can't be. Because the Holy Spirit's involvement is not only foundational to this life, it's transformative. The Holy Spirit is the one used in your sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the one that reminds you of all truth and guides you in all truth. And if we miss how the Holy Spirit guides and empowers and accompanies us in the midst of our obedience, then we will never ever be able to face the opposition well. We will never be prepared. None of us. Scripture, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and conviction that comes with that is given to us days and weeks and months before the temptation even knocks at your door. And if we're not using the, the very tools that have been given to us to protect us, then we are forfeiting the very blessing of what it means to be a follower of Christ. A blessing has been given to you. Don't take for granted the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? You know, the Holy Spirit presence gives us assurance and comfort in the midst of that opposition. And the ministry of, of proclaiming Jesus and serving others is intrinsically bound to the Spirit's leading and empowering. And so we see in the text out of the gate the importance of our spiritual preparation. I want you to pick back up with me in verse number four. He says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said, you son of the devil. Man, imagine being called that. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. You will not stop making crooked the, the straight paths of the Lord. Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he, has, he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John le- left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now the second thing I want us to see this morning in the text is the seriousness of opposition. The seriousness of opposition. Immediately, the missionaries encountered a formidable opposition here in the text. A man named Bar-Jesus. He emerges as a, a significant influencer within the island. Now, if you begin to study out Bar-Jesus and, and what's written about him in, in Christian um, or theological historical writings, we come to find out that Bar-Jesus employed deceptive practices of the occult arts. Bar-Jesus, he held a position of, of influence, and he particularly worked alongside Roman officials. So people that were in charge of making decisions, uh, appointing people that governed the provinces of Rome. And this potential, this, this potential salvation that was about to come of Sergius Paulus posed a threat to Bar-Jesus. His influence, his, his business in the middle of Rome. And in verse 8, we begin to observe a critical juncture here in the text. Bar-Jesus endeavors to divert Sergius Paulus from the path of truth. He didn't want him to hear the gospel. He didn't want Sergius to know God, to have a relationship with him, to bring truth to other people. He wanted to stop it from happening. And the gravity of the situation is so profound in the eyes of a holy God. Church, impeding the work of the Holy Spirit is a matter of utmost seriousness. Paul, used by God as an instrument of righteous judgment, firmly reproves Bar-Jesus. You son of the devil. He called him out. And in this divine intervention, Bar-Jesus is struck blind. A merciful act may I say, a merciful act by God because there could have been a possibility of permanent judgment by God for standing in the very way of the Holy Spirit. Obstructing the Holy Spirit in any way, shape, or form is an affront to the sovereign will of God in this life. And the mission of the Holy Spirit guiding individuals towards truth and salvation is central to God's redemptive plan. And any attempt, church, to thwart that work is met with divine intervention. A testament to to really God's zeal for purity and in, in the advancement of the gospel. I mean, bar Jesus serves as a symbol of the spiritual blindness that one occurs when you oppose God's divine purpose. And when we get to verse number 12... Sergius Paulus sees this display, the way that Paul handled Bar-Jesus, the act of divine intervention and and leading Bar-Jesus to blindness. And he displays this profound desire for salvation. And as as we look at Sergius's response 
we discern if we look a little deeper here in the text to see that it's not the messenger who ultimately won him over. It was the message. It was the message. And it's important for you and I this morning to acknowledge that the transformative power doesn't lie in the messenger. It lies in Christ who is seen in the gospel message. Uh, the message, the, the doctrine, the, the truth is all contained in the very word of God. And before you and I move on to the next set uh, of verses, I have to make an observation. I want you to go back with me and read verse 13 again. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, uh, in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. A little phrase that if you've never read the book of Acts, you just thought, hey, some guy helped him, and now he's not helping him any longer. But I have to explain something to you. Because this verse 13 pertains to a man by the name of John Mark. John Mark. And his departure from the scene is crucial for you and I to understand because the details are not explicitly provided in this moment. But two chapters later, we gain insight as to why John left them. And the church at Antioch was abundantly staffed with multiple leaders. And three individuals are mentioned in the account that were serving and ministering in the structure. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And there's an, there's an encounter of conflict that happens between Paul and John Mark, and it results in a division within this successful team. They were at odds with one another. And it's crucial for you and I to understand that while division occurred, the mission continued moving forward. It did not stop it shows you and I that amidst human conflict, God's overarching purpose remains steadfast in the midst of our sinfulness. It keeps going. Internal dissension and division and disunity has damaged and destroyed more churches than false doctrine. And while it is crucial that I not downplay the threat of false doctrine, it is imperative for you to recognize that disunity and division are a gateway through which the devil will infiltrate the church and it results in extensive harm. And so I need you to, to look up here for just a moment. Stop playing on your phones and writing. I need you to look up here for a moment. As your pastor, I earnestly beg, I exhort each one of you to remain vigilant in preserving the unity of our church. Because our inclination towards sinful pride and personal preferences and differing opinions should never be permitted to sow seeds of spiritual discord in this body. Not pointing at any one person. I'm, I'm making a blanket statement to us as a body. That opposition through Satan and his followers come when we allow our pridefulness or our personal preferences or our differing opinions to get in the way of what God has for us as a church. Amen? Now, despite the opposition that was stated, 
Paul and Barnabas stayed focused on spreading the gospel to people. Now, I don't have a ton of time to read the next section, so I want us to just pick up in 14, and I'm probably going to jump through verses to get us uh, near the end. So it says in verse 14, it says that, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul is like, Hey, I have something I want to share. share. I have to say something to you. And over the next huge chunk, Paul begins at the Old Testament and he begins to work his way all the way through to where they're at right now, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we can see Christ moving in moment after moment after moment in the Old Testament. Now I want you to pick up with me in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers. Means we bring you the gospel We're bringing you the message of Christ. Verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he continues to share. And I want you to jump with me to verse 42. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath day. Paul shares the gospel with this group of people and he finishes and he's leaving. And they're like, wait, are you going to come back and share more truth with us next week? They got excited about hearing the word of God and all God's people said, oh, church, that was not great. How many of you get excited about hearing the word of God? They were excited. They wanted to go back to church. They wanted to to be in the house of the Lord so they could hear truth. They could be changed by truth. They they could have have a reiteration of the mission that was laid out for them. Look at verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God of God. And so the next thing and last point I want us to see this morning is that there was Christ-centered speaking. Christ-centered speaking. You know, Paul is truly impassioned and he's ready to share a sermon that's going to captivate the very hearts of his listeners. And I, I love, I love Paul uh, because Paul to me is a seasoned orator. He loves to speak the very word of God. I I feel um, how he feels. Paul is the expressive hand gesture guy. That's Paul as he's sharing the gospel. And he launches into this dispelling or this compelling discourse that we see. And and I know we didn't read through it. I'm going to encourage you to go back and read this entire chapter. Okay? But what follows is Paul's inaugural sermon. He meticulously structured every piece of what he said. 
And he embarks on this journey through Israel's history. And he weaves in the profound gospel message all the way through it. A message that resounds through the entire book of Acts. And he begins to speak about these key themes of the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, right? The wrongful crucifixion of Jesus is talked about. How God resurrected Jesus from the dead. But then he calls for repentance and a belief for anyone who is open. He says, whosoever. Paul passionately preached Christ. He emphasized that sin is not merely a transgression of the law, but that it's a rebellious attitude towards Christ's rightful claim over our life. Paul said that sinfulness is a a rejection of God and it stems from a hostility that we have towards him. But then he said, church, repentance is crucial. We must turn away from that rebellion against God's authority. People reject God not due to ignorance. They reject God due to a deliberate unwillingness to submit to him. And it's evident. It was evident in the day that Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. And sadly, it echoes all the way through to today. A rejection of Jesus. And so I ask you in this moment... I ask you, dear church, have you responded to the compelling preaching of Jesus Christ? Have you embraced repentance? Because if you have accepted the gospel message, then you're called to start walking that way. I love these men in the text. The people are saying, are you going to come back? Are you going to come back next week and share? And Paul and Barnabas, uh, they pushed the people to continue on, to keep going, to pursue Christ's likeness. Uh, That's perseverance in the text. He's pushing them to keep diving in to Scripture. The the pressing in to truth and changing. And that's discipleship and sanctification. That's what that is. I mean, salvation church, as I've said in the past, happens in an instant. But it's proved out over the remainder of your life here on this earth. And the authenticity of your salvation is revealed not just in a change of action, but in a change of attitude towards truth. And when you and I experience the the transformative embrace of salvation, a shift occurs in your disposition towards God. Or it should. Why? Because salvation is an absolute transformation. It's not just a part of. Jesus didn't just attach himself to your old nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The former things have all passed away and behold all things become new. All of them in Christ has been made new. And so there's a definite indicator 
of a divine intervention that happens in your life. One that's been orchestrated by the Holy Spirit and it's profoundly personal and how we connect or feel about sin. When we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, there should be a mere frustration. There should be something that transcends a mere frustration at slipping up or a shame that stems from breaking the rules. Because sin in our awakened state, sin in our life, as we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, resonates deeply with the heart of God, and it should leave an indelible mark on our own heart. It's, it's more than an acknowledgement of our own transgression after we've gotten saved. It's an empathetic sharing of the pain that it causes a holy God. Sin as a believer, should be viewed through the lens of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it should shatter our heart because it shatters the heart of God. And I wonder how often we, we miss the moments of God in our relationship because we've seen sin as something that's superficial. I wonder how many moments of sanctification and transformation in our lives have been missed or thrown away because we've seen, oh, this, this is not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm not a murderer. I wonder how much of our relationship with sin has overtaken and we no longer have an understanding of the gravity of our actions. There should be a, an innate desire in us to strive for a life that honors and uplifts God. There's a, there's a communion in our relationship with the Lord. And that communion should motivate you and I to a life of repentance. And it should motivate us to a life of transformation and a pursuit of a righteous life. It underscores the, the, the pivotal movement of preaching Christ, the, the core of our faith. And the very reason why Paul and any genuine preacher emphasizes Christ in their sermon is because of our need for him. And it, rem it serves really as a reminder for you and I today of the pitfall that was faced not only by the Jewish people, but a danger that still looms for us here in this very moment of time. We can find ourselves comfortably seated in the chairs of this church, engaging in actions uh, of service and identifying as religion, all or religious, all the while lacking a relationship with Jesus Christ. Coming to church doesn't send you to heaven. Serving in the church doesn't send you to heaven. Giving money does not send you to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to get there. Believing in his death, burial, and resurrection is the only way to get there. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and you confess it with your mouth, you shall be saved. So don't sit here today, church, and, and I'm not saying this to, to, to narc on anybody or to rat anybody out, but don't sit here thinking I'm well and good with God because I showed up to church today. 
You need Christ today just as much as you needed him the day you got saved, just as much as you needed him before you even knew him. The gospel is just as much for the believer in his sanctification as it is for the lost person living a life of debauchery outside of these walls. Don't cling to your wants. Don't fail to yield to the authority of God in your life, church. At our very core, we have a deep-seated hostility towards God and it resists His will. We struggle to remain steadfast. I get it. And that's why we need Jesus every moment of every day. And so I want to close by asking you a question. What fills you? What fills you? Because if we look at the very last verse in this chapter, it says that the people had both joy and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you resonate with that experience? Because remarkably, the chapter opens and closes with the presence of the Holy Spirit to the body of believers. And we're, we're being beckoned by the word of God to take a reflection of our own life. Could it be, could it be this morning that our persistent sense of joylessness, our feelings of emptiness, they stem from investing excessive time and energy into pursuits of fleeting significance. Because it's no coincidence that the Holy Spirit manifests his power and his presence in a remarkable manner when God's people embrace his mission. The joy that we seek, the, the, the infusement of the Holy Spirit, it remains elusive until you and I engage in the internal work of evangelism and discipleship. And so my prayer today, my prayer today is twofold for each one of us. First, my prayer is, is this, if you haven't embraced salvation, that you would pause, that you would reconsider and welcome Christ into your life. And secondly, my second prayer leading up to this week is for those who are saved. That you would deeply, or that you would deepen your commitment to evangelism and discipleship. That you would immerse yourself into a joy that comes from serving Christ. That ignites uh, what I would call a new era in your life. It characterizes the, the very joy and passion in the pursuit of, of God's mission. And those have been my two prayers for us as a church. For the unsaved and then for the saved. And so if you would at this time, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Be in an attitude of prayer. I'm going to ask you to do something that you may see as odd. I'm going to ask you to pray while I am praying. Pray over those two things while I'm, while I'm praying. God, we stand at this moment, God. We stand at this moment with our hearts and our minds open to your presence.
And we come before you as a, as a church. And I pray, Lord, that it is in awe and reverence. We can't get away from the fact that your grace and mercy is boundless and that it's led us right here for such a time as this. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would allow us to reflect on the wisdom that was embedded into this chapter. But Lord, we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, what fills us? We, we know that the answer is clear in your word. But I, I pray that we desire to resonate with being filled with the joy and presence of your Holy Spirit. And I, I pray, Lord, that we are moved to discern where our focus truly lies from day to day. Have we at times, is it possible that we've allowed our joy to be stifled by fleeting pursuits? Have we felt empty? God, have we yearned for something more substantial instead of coming to you? God, I pray for those who have not embraced salvation. I ask, Lord, that you would bring forth a divine encounter, a, a moment of clarity, a moment of conviction that would turn their hearts towards you. And God, I'm asking for each one of us to have those divine encounters this week and into the next week and the week after that, Lord, as we are looking for people who are lost so we can share the gospel with them. And then I pray for us as a church those of us who are a part of your family, who have been saved. God, I beg of you to deepen our commitment to the mission. Ignite within each one of us um, an urgency, Lord, to share the gospel with the world around us and to disciple those who are new to the faith. Lord, I... My wife and I have been begging that this next season would be a season of church life that is marked by purpose, by joy, by an unyielding pursuit of your mission. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking because the things that we're praying are aligned with Scripture, which means that they are aligned with your will. And so, Lord, I'm asking for you to bring them to fruition because you are a person of your word. I ask and pray all of these things in, in the mighty and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen.